Many Catholic women, by the time they hit five, ten years of marriage, are extremely critical of their husband's headship. Either they don't like what he does, or he's not doing enough. Given how common this is among Catholic wives, it seems inevitable. But is there actually something a wife can do to avoid this situation developing? Last week we referred in a general sense to tasks which God designed our husbands to handle, stating that the easiest way for our husband to get to heaven is by faithfully completing those tasks assigned to him by God. But while we've all heard that men are called to pastor, provide, and protect, I'm learning that many women still struggle greatly with uh, clearly delineating what those tasks are. And for my part, I struggled with feeling overwhelmed by my task load, but I haven't personally struggled with trying to figure out which tasks belong to me and which other tasks properly belong to my husband. And I do credit my parents with providing me with an excellent example of a biblical marriage, which has spared me this particular difficulty. But when I did receive a question from a woman asking, how do you know what tasks are properly your husband's, I really had to stop to think about that. Um, I ended up asking my husband if I could run a few thoughts by him. And after that conversation, I feel really good about what I'm able to now share with you all. So we're going to start off with a little theology of the body. Um, no worries if you haven't had any previous exposure to the theology of the body. I do highly recommend reading the original tra transcripts. Um, and if you're looking for a good teacher, Sister Helena Burns is my favorite. Um, I've been studying the theology of the body since I was in middle school, and I've read many commentaries, used various programs, taken a class at our local seminary. And Sister Helena Burns is, I think, the best teacher for making the theology of the body accessible to the laity in its fullness. If you are at all interested, we've linked to the registration form for her online course through Sacred Heart College in this week's podcast description. And if you are already familiar with the theology of the body, if the language that I'm using now seems unfamiliar, uh, this brief commentary on two specific points comes directly from my notes on Sisters class. These are fairly simple points that I want to share in relation to our topic. So we know that we are made in the image and likeness of God. Um, that means that each human being, whether woman or man, images God in his fullness. Not that woman images a certain half of God or that man images a certain other half. And yet there is a mystery here, the same sort of mystery behind the Trinity, that somehow, even though woman images God in his fullness, and man images God in his fullness, that together in and through the sacrament of matrimony, man and woman image God more fully than they are able to separately as individuals. But also part of that mystery is that God the Father is not God the Son, nor God the Holy Spirit and that God the Son is not God the Father, nor God the Holy Spirit, and God the Holy Spirit is not God the Father, nor is he God the Son. 
and although always united, always one, we never speak of God the Father or God the Holy Spirit being crucified. Always God the Son. So in the same way that we speak of the persons of the Trinity as having differing tasks or roles, while each being fully God, so man and woman image differing characteristics of God and have differing specific tasks, while each imaging God in his fullness. The way that Sister Helena Burns terms these differences is that man primarily images God's transcendence and woman primarily images God's imminence, not because man is incapable of imaging God's imminence or that woman is incapable of imaging God's transcendence. We have to understand that our capabilities, while they can serve our calling, are not what determine our calling. Our capabilities can serve our calling, but do not determine our calling. This is what we mean when we say that God doesn't call the qualified, but rather qualifies the call. When we say that man primarily images God's transcendence, we mean that man is called to go outside of himself, that his tasks require him primarily to work outside of himself, and that woman, primarily imaging God's immanence, that's immanence with, with, with an A, not with an I, means that she is called to draw all things to herself and work in that space. And this, of course, is consistent with what the differences in our bodies demonstrates. That's the whole point of the theology of the body, is that we are able to make visible through our physical selves the invisible God. And also that by studying the human body and the differences between male and female bodies, we can learn about God's intentions and purpose for us. But some people make the serious mistake of supposing that this is only in reference to the conjugal act and zone in on that to their detriment, which is why, again, I recommend Sister Helena Burns as the best teacher because she does not make this mistake. The theology of the body is about so much more than our sexuality. And this idea of man's imaging God's transcendence and woman's imaging God's imminence is not exclusive by any means to the study of the theology of the body. For example, we speak of the Blessed Mother's mantle of protection and ask that she draw all of humanity to herself and keep us under that mantle of protection. On the other hand, her son says of himself, in Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 36, quote, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household, end quote. Another example is when Father Nathan Cromley speaks of the distinct calls to make bubbles and make waves. And granted, when he uses this uh, language, he speaks of the call of the clergy and the consecrated religious versus the laity, where he says that the consecrated are called to make bubbles, to make little havens of the Catholic faith practiced with excellence, 
And then the laity are called to enter the bubble, so to speak, to receive formation, to be strengthened. But ultimately, the laity are called to go outside of the bubble into the world to make waves. And that's essentially what happens when we have Holy Mass. We enter a bubble for a period of formation, of refreshment, of regrounding, of recentering. Great quote here from Michael Ward, quote, Religion, on the other hand, means something like tying back together, tying up, religamenting, religaturing, if you like, finding the unity, end quote. And then we are sent, the laity are sent out to bring the fruits of the Mass into the world. And again, it's not exclusive. It's not that the clergy and consecrated are not capable of or, or are not permitted to make waves. Obviously, Father Nathan himself, as well as people like Father Mike Schmitz and Sister Helena Burns, are making incredible waves in the world. But maybe you've heard consecrated religious tell us laity that we are called to go where they cannot go. And for example, I, I think of my doula, an incredible Catholic grandmother who has been my prayer warrior through all of my home births, an example of where a priest or a nun cannot be. But this faithful woman of God can. And in the same way, and as much as the laity are called to make waves in the world, every Catholic family should be its own little bubble. And that's where I want to take Father Nathan's language a step further. A few months back, I shared this quote from Pope Pius Twelfth. quote, the prime role of the husband is to provide a living and prepare the future for the family and the home in those matters which affect him and the children in that future. The woman's role encompasses those countless ceaseless details those imponderable daily attentions and cares, which create the atmosphere of a family. And depending on whether they are properly performed or not, make the home either healthy, attractive, and comfortable, or demoralized and unbearable. End quote. And what Pope Pius Twelfth is basically saying is that the wife is responsible for creating and maintaining the bubble the Catholic family bubble, the bubble of the home. And the husband goes out and makes waves. He is focused on bettering the world outside of the bubble for the benefit of the family members when they are called to leave that bubble for various periods of time. And again, not because mom can't or shouldn't go out and make waves or that dad doesn't have any role in the maintenance of the bubble. But God has created woman to image his imminence. He has given woman a knack for focusing, for zoning in on this bubble, and has given man a different calling, a different task. Again, Adam was tasked with caring for the garden of the world, and Eve was tasked with caring for the garden of man's heart. These are just a few different ways of saying the same things about the distinctions in how God has designed men versus women. And finally, with regards to women's imaging of God's imminence, I want to share this quote from Carrie Gress. Quote, Women are called to contain others, not just to hold on to them, but to improve them and let them go again. Now healthier, stronger, and better prepared for the journey. The time-honored symbols of women, vessels, ovens, ships, and so on, 
represent containing something, transforming it, bringing people to safety. These are not unimportant things, but truly the elements that help people grow into their full potential. End quote. Now, another thing that Sister Helena Burns talks about when she teaches theology of the body is the concept of what she calls horizons. She says that man's first horizon was things and woman's first horizon was persons. Maybe another word for horizons might be baseline. Um, and I think this is pretty well understood. I think it's silly to get upset about it as a stereotype because it's true. And the age-old example um, that I think everyone's familiar with is what happens when men and women bring each other their problems, right? We've all hold the, heard this told in some way or another. When a woman shares a problem with a man, he immediately looks to fix the problem. His focus, his primary focus is on the thing, the problem. The relationship is secondary. And of course, we all know that the rest of the commentary goes something about how women don't actually want him to fix the thing. They just want him to listen, right? When a man brings a problem to a woman, her primary focus is on the relationship. Um, her secondary focus is on the problem. So she might seek to provide a solution, but her reason for doing so has everything to do with their relationship. She's trying to manage his stress. She doesn't want him to be grumpy because she doesn't want to deal with him when he's grumpy. She doesn't want things to be strained between them. Um, and so providing a solution might address all of the relational concerns that are in the forefront for her. Another example, just for laughs, um, is found in Michael McIntyre's skit on the man drawer. <laughs> My husband and I love this skit. The whole thing is fantastic. But there's one part especially that I think really highlights this truth about men and their first horizon or baseline being things. Michael McIntyre is talking about various objects that can be found um, in the man drawer. And he goes, the radiator bleeding key. Is there a more masculine object? <laughs> and he goes on to say that one feels very manly when bleeding the radiator. And it's hilarious, but it's true. You know, there's truth there, right? Like, like a woman would never say, is there a more feminine object than a purse? No, that's not. <laughs> we don't, we don't have that sort of relationship with physical objects. Um, we love beauty and we have a special calling to make things beautiful, including ourselves. And sometimes we employ physical objects like dresses and jewelry to that end. But even then there's a relational aspect there, which is primary. And that is that we know instinctively that beauty is something that begs to be shared. You know, the radiator bleeding key... <laughs> It doesn't make him feel manly when, when he's sharing it with someone. He just feels manly when he's using it himself. That's such an important distinction. But anyway, going back to uh, the question about men, because we're trying to answer the question, how do we know what tasks are properly our husband's? 
Continuing on this train of thought that men have a different sort of relationship with physical things than we do, there are two very specific things which are inexplicably tied to our men's sense of self-worth and are therefore integral to their relationship with both God and their wives and by extension any children. And those two things are work and money. I have to say, it's so frustrating when women ignore what men have to say about their own relationships with work and money, whether explicitly or implied, and instead insist on listening to other women who have no idea what they're talking about and just project toxic femininity onto men. Ladies, you need to listen to men if you want to have a real understanding of how they operate. If you want a solid example and decent understanding of how God created men to view their work and view their money, listen to the podcast series Good Money by New Polity, which we've linked to in our podcast description, where Jacob Imam and Mark Barnes discuss both the philosophical and the pragmatic, all solidly grounded in both scripture and tradition. If you aren't a podcast person or look at the Good Money series and are overwhelmed by the number of episodes in that particular series, then I recommend that you listen to at least one episode in particular, which again we've linked to um, in this week's podcast description, the title of which is, Is Retirement Wrong?, And in a nutshell, Jacob and Mark explain how the idea of retirement isn't really Catholic. Or rather, specifically, this idea that we reach a point in our earthly life where we have earned the right to just sit back and pamper ourselves and stop contributing to society. Retiring from a specific job might be in order for whatever reason, and there are many valid reasons, such as no longer having the stamina or muscle power to operate machinery, okay? But the idea that man, at some point in his earthly life, actually reaches a point where he has earned an indefinite break until the day he dies is not a biblical idea. Man, Jacob and Mark explain, even when retired from a specific job, is still expected by God to continue making waves in the world, to continue contributing to society, to continue to work the earth. This is fascinating. So listen to that. Last week, we talked about pregnancy and childbirth and how God's intention for women to be sanctified through these experiences is the norm. Well, whenever there is a norm for sanctification, that is precisely where the devil will attack heavily. And so for men, working to provide for their family and managing money well are two norms through which God intends for men to be sanctified. It should be no wonder then that the devil attacks heavily in these areas, that the temptation for men to allow an aggressive, controlling wife, or even a relatively submissive but overly helpful wife to relieve them of these responsibilities is unparalleled. 
Ladies, there's a lot of focus in the world on men's temptation towards lust. One of the reasons that the modern man's will is so weak when it comes to lust is because of emasculation by women in the areas of work and money. Last week, we heard this quote from Carrie Grass, quote, take away men's responsibility to lead, protect, and care for the general welfare of his people or family, and he ends up unfocused, without a mission, adrift in life, end quote. Providing for a family and managing money well demands so much of a man, ladies. These two things demand so much good of a man demand so much solid development of virtue. And again, they associate work and money with their self-worth. So what happens when you have a man who does not have work and money management to occupy him, to force him to have self-control, to force him to develop a keen attention to detail, to demand that he seek to read the signs of the times and be prudent and resourceful? And on top of all that, to have a low sense of self-esteem and self-worth. And frankly, to have time on his hands, right? Idle minds and idle hands are the devil's playthings. What is he going to turn to? Yeah, pornography. Lustful outlets, because their guard is down. They already don't think much of themselves. They already have no hope for themselves. They're backed into corners by all the women who know better, who are more capable than them, who have no use for them. Why do women not understand this? The following quote is from Stephen Wood's book entitled Legacy, a Father's Handbook for Raising Godly Children. Quote, hard, sweaty work and lack of abundance were the consequences of Adam's original sin, as announced by God in the Garden of Eden. These consequences weren't indiscriminate or cruel punishments pronounced against Adam. A closer look reveals that they were gracious disciplines meant to keep sinful tendencies from multiplying. Hard work is an overlooked way to build virtue and restrain those vices fueled by prosperous ease. End quote. So ladies, your husband needs to know that he is capable of providing for you. He needs to know that he can support his family with his job. He needs to know that he can handle money well. When I say that he needs these things, I mean that they are legitimate needs on his part, needs which are defining for his character and for his relationships with God and with yourself. Now, does this mean it's sinful for a wife to work or assist in managing the money? No, we won't make any blanket statement like that. But it is a vastly different situation for a wife to be supplementing the household income or assisting with money management after a man has developed confidence in his capability to provide for her and has delegated to her a task which he knows with confidence that he can take back off of her plate at any time versus before he has developed that confidence, perhaps is even in a place where he fears that the task is one at which he would fail and thereby either earn or worse, deepen 
his wife's existing contempt and distrust in him. Remember that we heard from a man from John Gray three weeks ago that, quote, a man's deepest fear is that he is not good enough or that he is incompetent, end quote. If a wife works to supplement the family's income or helps to manage the finances while a man is actively struggling with these fears, then for as long as she is doing so, these fears will deepen in her husband. And as we discussed over the last three weeks, what happens? As man's fears regarding his own incompetence deepen, he withdraws, he retreats, he hides, he invests less and less and less in his marriage. And yes, eventually he can and ultimately will reach a point where he truly believes that he has nothing to give and will therefore stop trying. Some men get suicidal. Women need to understand and take responsibility for their role in facilitating either their husband's growth or their husband's demise. Yes, he is called to lay down his life for his wife, as Christ did for the church, but that <laughs> that's a tough order when a wife expects it to either happen all at once and doesn't make room for incremental growth or just straight up tells him with words or actions that she doesn't trust him to succeed. We can say that generally it's not a sin for women to work. We can say that generally it's not a sin for wives to assist with managing the finances. But it is a sin for a woman to seek control or to manipulate her husband. It is a sin for a woman to disrespect her husband. And it is a sin for a woman to emasculate her husband. And so with that said, discernment is demanded of a wife with regards to how and when and why she works and or assists with financial management. Right, so today we've been rather focused on the philosophical. In compensating part two, we will focus on the pragmatic. What can you do if you are currently working and or managing the finances and perhaps based on what you've heard today, feel that you need to take preventative measures or might need to begin to remedy an existing situation? Aside from implementing a discipline of joy, are there specific steps which a wife should take? We will tackle that question in, again, compensating part two coming up in two weeks. God bless. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast.